0: Now that the ark is safely in the city of David, David contemplates the severity of godly worship. This is the 13th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our are all coming to reading, coming from Second Samuel and chapter 7. 2 Samuel and chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Second Samuel chapter 7, 1 through 13. Beloved of the Lord, by inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And it came to pass, when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all of his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. And it came to pass, that night, that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me an house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me an house of cedar? Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel. And I was with thee, whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused them to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. John writes to us in his first epistle of St. John, John chapter two, verse 15 through 17. First John chapter two, 15 through 17. But the same spirit that moved the prophet to write, so does John write. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God, abideth forever. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers. The flower thereof fades away, but the Word of God stands forever, and by His holy Word is the Gospel presented unto us again this day. Now, there can be no doubt that David was a serious man. Despite any of his faults that he may have had or any missteps in his actions, David took his relationship with God very seriously. As a very young man, he was groomed on the fields of Israel, tending the sheep of his father Jesse. And during that time, He was able to prove himself both as a brave young man and as a faithful steward of his father's possessions. Now, according to the faith that God had given him, and that's what it was all about, it was according to the faith that God had given him as a gift, David then slays Goliath, he serves under Saul, he defeats the armies of the Philistines time and time again, over and over, he befriends Jonathan, he marries, excels in everything that he does, and as a result is catapulted into his greatest trial before the murderous intentions of Saul. And these providential orchestrations of his life made him what he was and what he had to become. Through those trials, he was being groomed to be the king that he was. But even as a serious man in the things of God, Uz's dramatic death brings David even more sobriety. That event brought David to a a clearer focus than ever before. He was able to experience, perhaps like he never was able to experience this before, the fear of the Lord when God killed Uzzah for his disobedience. And it is at that time when God now, after the return of the ark to Jerusalem, when God now gives Nathan the prophet a distinct picture of his divine will. We read this in verses 1 and 2. Notice And it came to pass when the king sat in his house and the Lord, Yahweh, had given him rest round about from all of his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within curtains. God had given David rest from all of his enemies for one purpose and one purpose only, so that David might serve God without distraction. David could have said, Oh, I'm now free of all of my enemies, maybe now I'll just take it easy. But no, he's concerned about the things of God. And so whenever God's people are brought to the place of victory and ease and comfort, giving God's people rest from their enemies, even the the wickedness that dwells in them from the old Adamic nature, God then expects them to use that time of deliverance, comfort and ease For one purpose, to serve Him. Our ease in this modern life is given to us for the purpose of serving God. It is as simple as that, and it gets no simpler. The sad truth, however, is that our ease and our comfort, our prosperity... Instead of bringing us to the place where we would serve God more and get more involved in the kingdom work, we become more worldly, more worldly minded. Freedom, however, is to be used for the building of the kingdom of God, not so that we can indulge in the worldliness of the world. And it seems as if too many Christians have things backwards. The cart is before the horse. God only has liberated His people, the people of His inheritance, so that they would not have to be preoccupied in constant warfare, but so that they could work for the kingdom's glory. And whenever that liberty is taken from the people of God, it is usually because they have squandered their time of liberty and devoted it for their own ease rather than for the building of the kingdom. So you think about why we are having our liberty taken from us is because we've squandered our time of liberty because we've devoted it to ourselves rather than to the building of the kingdom. In order for the people of God to refocus, God often brings conflict into their lives. We are in an age of conflict. And we are in an age of conflict so that we can refocus and rethink where have we erred. We are at such a time as this simply because we have lost our focus... And we have run after the things of the world rather than the things of God. Now there's a principle here. Godly contemplation, and that's a good thing to think about the things of God. It's a good thing. But godly contemplation without action is futile. However, on the other hand, action without godly contemplation leads to misplaced zeal. Contemplation upon the divine protects us from worldliness. And I think that we have lost our focus on the divine and we have run after the things of worldliness. Now, as a result of David's fidelity, God gives David rest from all of his enemies in order for him to more clearly, without distraction, focus on his calling as an ambassador of Christ's kingdom. And the first thing that he does is contemplate the situation at hand. He contemplates the situation that providence has given him. And I think that's a lesson for us. We must always be focused upon the things of God and not to be distracted from our vocation. We have not been liberated from our sins to go on vacation, but that we might have a vocation. And we have to consider, what is that vocation? Note David's concern. Notice what he says. See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God... I'm concerned about the ark of God. The ark of God dwells within curtains. David is not saying, look, now that I'm in a state of peace and comfort, I, I can take it easy. You know, I'm older now. I've been, in the, I've been in the fight, and I've done Goliath, and I've taken care of Saul, and I'm now this great king. I'm just going to sit back and let the young guys do it. No. He's a man of passion. He's a man who had the stamp of Christ on his heart. He had the stamp of Christ upon his heart and he was passionate for the things of God. He doesn't say, I'm in a state of comfort now, I can take it easy. No, rather he says, now that I am in a state of peace and comfort, give me something else. What more can I do for the kingdom? David is testifying that while he is situated in the ease of his comfortable house made of cedar wood, the temple of God, the most important thing in his life and the most important thing on the face of the earth is being housed in a humble tent. David is concerned with one thing, the honor of God. Consider first what this refers to symbolically. Well, to have the glory of God remain in a humble tent is the same as allowing the Christ of God to remain in the Bethlehem manger as the baby Jesus, instead of depicting Him riding victoriously in a white horse with fire coming out of His eyes and the two-edged sword coming out of His mouth. And that's what Jesus has been relegated to in many churches of today. And that's where many Christians leave Him as well, as a baby, helpless and vulnerable, someone to be manipulated and controlled. This also speaks symbolically of the Church. Too many Christians today think that the testimony of the Church needs to remain hidden and humiliated in the four-wall ghetto of the Church rather than magnificently conspicuous for the entire world to contemplate and fear. The Church has become a laughingstock because the people are distracted from the honor of God. There is, however, a more fundamental flaw in today's easy believism and modern theological perspective. Today's church has failed to recognize that the New Testament period is where Jesus actually conquers his enemies. The New Testament period is often likened to the days of vengeance, where God comes to enlist an army of redeemed and sanctified souls in order to go forth conquering and to conquer by the legitimate authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Church of Jesus Christ is today. Or at least what it should be. David understood that God had to be paraded for all the world to see in a glorious temple, not a tent, symbolizing both His glory and His majesty. David's heart was in the right place. His heart was held captive to the honor of God no matter what it took and no matter what it cost. He was going to get it done. You see, for David, God was everything The kingdom was everything. God was everything to David, which manifested itself by David actually doing everything he could for God. You know, I just laugh when people say, I really wanted to do this for Jesus. No, you didn't. Because if you really wanted to do it for Christ, you would do it for Christ. Because the things that you wanted to do, you would be doing. God was everything to David. David's contemplation on God His serious contemplation on God, his meditation upon God, resulted in actionable life endeavors. His life was actionable. Knowing this, Nathan tells David to do whatever was in his heart to honor God by constructing the temple because David understood what was in the heart of David because of his actions. You know a man by his actions. Even a child is known by his doings. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. Now a number of things stand out here. Number one, Nathan knew David's heart because David had established a testimony of zeal for the honor of God. He was a man of action. He was a man of contemplation. Secondly, Nathan also knew from that testimony that David was a serious man. Give me a serious man and we will conquer the world. Third, He also knew that David was a capable man. And if anyone could get the job done, it was David. He had shown himself a capable man. He wasn't flighty. He wasn't a a fit and a start man. He was a capable man, a consistent man, a devout man, a diligent man. I think the real question is, what did David know about himself? No, it's not so much what did Nathan know about David, but rather how did Nathan know these things about David and what did David know about himself? Well, David was the man that he was and was able to do the things that he did and was able to and, and was able and willing to think God's after him because he had a keen understanding of his calling. You know, I think I think too many of us we go we go through life without understanding what's our purpose in life? Why are we here? What is life all about? Why has God called us? So we could be happy? So we could be... go to heaven? Is that our purpose? That's God's purpose. Our purpose is service. David was intimately in touch with his calling and vocation in life. He contemplated it. He knew what he needed to do and he knew how to get there. David was a man with a clear sense of mission. And that mission, because it was clear, it was a clear sense of mission, that mission crystallized his vision. I challenge anyone to have a written statement of mission. Have you written down your life's mission statement? Because you know when you just think about it and contemplate it, it kind of gets fuzzy. But When you write it down, you put it on the wall somewhere, you put it in a little journal somewhere, you can go back to it, am I fulfilling my mission? What is my mission? David had a clear sense of mission, which crystallized his vision and it directed his action. David was not always clear, to be fair. He was not always clear to his purpose. In fact, there were times when he was even in doubt of his own life. When he wasn't really sure of his his purpose, of his mission. It was only... After a long train of humbling trials and a series of maturing events, that David was then finally able to clearly see his purpose and take hold of his life's calling unto God. All of these things made him the man that he was and the ability to see his life's path clearly. So sometimes we need those humbling things. Sometimes we need those things that, that, that challenge us. Now once a man embraces his calling, once it's clear... Religion becomes a serious matter and once religion becomes a serious matter, it occupies him constantly. It occupies him constantly. David was such a man of religious severity. When Jesus related God's commandments to love Him from Deuteronomy chapter 6, He told Israel that they had to love God with their whole heart. Notice, the entirety of their their heart, the entirety of their soul, the entirety of their might, and then He added with their mind. Their whole mind. So He's telling them, you have to contemplate God constantly. You have to love Him with your mind Matthew twenty two thirty seven 37, Jesus saith unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. The mind, in other words, had to be engaged in the service and love of God. Once a Christian recognizes his calling unto God, he has a mind to work. If you don't recognize your calling unto God, and young people listen carefully. You need to find your calling unto God because if you don't know what your calling unto God is, you'll never have purpose. But once you recognize your calling unto God, you will have a mind to work. The Christian then becomes engaged in the business of his heavenly Father and nothing can take him from that calling. Not the love of the world, not the lust of the eyes, not the pride of life. It is this purpose of mind that makes the cold man a serious man. David was such a man. David was a serious man. His religion was real. It was actionable. His religion had eternity in view and he would not trifle with it. As so many today in our modern apostate church do. They trifle with eternity. His religion was not added to his life. It was his life. And because David had eternity in view, he understood how important temporal life was, which had to be lived to the glory of God. David embraced the truth of God and then he acted upon it. George Swinock, the great Puritan was no stranger to the severity of God's calling. He says this, What can be more rational than that supreme truth to be believed, the chiefest good to be embraced, the first cause to be acknowledged, and those who were made by God to live wholly upon Him, to improve all for Him, and to live wholly to Him, entirely to Him. Swinak asks this question, and then he gives the answer. He says, "Quote: Why did God make man just on the evening before the Sabbath, so that he might immediately enter upon the sanctification of the Sabbath, in the worship of the blessed God, the end for which He was made? David's acts of service were indeed acts of worship. Focus was one of David's most powerful weapons. While he was focused upon the things of God, he was safe and productive. We find today the assault upon the Christian mind not being able to focus between videos and Internet and Facebook and all of this other nonsense. We can't even read a a book without, uh, without being distracted. We're being distracted by the world. The world has become our enemy. Now once David's focus was hijacked, he would be ineffective. Whenever our focus is hijacked by worldly pursuits, by the lust of the flesh, we then become ineffective to the point where sin crouches at our door. Because when we lose our focus, when we lose our contemplation, when we are inactive, how does it go? Idle hands is the devil's playground? So at this point in his reign, David is a man of focus and he is a man of resolve. He had displaced any worldly notions which made his sights on building the Lord's temple preeminent in his mind. You see, that's the key. God must be preeminent in the mind. He will have, he declares that he will have preeminence. Swinok so comments on the dangers. Note this, this is just incredible. Swinok comments on the dangers of worldly distractions. And you just got to love the way this man thinks. He says, The world indeed, like a serpent, when she cannot overtake the fleeing passengers, doth with her beautiful colors so amaze many, that they have no power to pass away, till she hath stung them. Thus, silly are many men, How do they cark and care, toil and maul for this world, which they must leave forever? They waste their time and strength to increase their heaps, when on a sudden all perish, and they themselves often with it. Reader, art thou one of these moles who live in the earth as their element, carking and caring chiefly how to exalt self and please the flesh? Answer God these questions. Art thou convinced that the true and living God made thee a rational creature, and hath served thee in all the days of thy days with innumerable mercies upon a nobler design and for a higher end than the gratification of thy flesh and sensitive appetite? Friend, what sayest thou? Do not muzzle the mouth of conscience, but give it leave to speak its mind freely. Swinock simply echoes the words of the prophet who asks a probing question, Isaiah 55, 2. Wherefore, says Isaiah, do you spend money for that which is not bread and for your labor for that which satisfies not? Why are you wasting your time? David understood that to pursue the world was of little profit. You might gain the whole world But as Jesus said, you will lose your entire life. And so understanding that reality, he turns his attention, his time, his skill, his strength, and his wealth to establishing God's kingdom by building God's temple. David filled his eyes with the glory of his Redeemer so as not to be snared by the vainglory of the serpentine world. You have to fill your eye with the glory of God. These must be the dictates of the Christian life. What we do, we do for the glory of God, the kingdom of God, and the people of God. Now, while this was in the heart and the mind of the king, he had really no word of confirmation as to what the will of the Lord was. And this too is an important lesson. While we may have great notions as to how we might serve God, we must wait for divine confirmation before we undertake our quest. Now, even though Nathan gives David a word of encouragement, it was the Lord that actually did gave David his marching orders. We read this in verses 4 and 5. Notice, And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Now notice, this is a question. David wants to build a temple. That's what he wants to do. And that was a noble thing. But now the Lord says this, Are you going to build it? Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? This was a question for David to contemplate. And while his heart wanted to advance the Kingdom of God in his lifetime, he is tasked not so much with the mission, but with the question. Will you be building my temple? Literally, yourself? Or will you be an integral cog in the entire mechanism? Now this question might have confused the king and at the same time a great challenge to David of which he was ready to undertake. Now consider the enormity of the challenge. The building of God's house. An incredible task. David's desire is to build a structure that will symbolize God and his glory to the entire nation of Israel and to the world and yet he recognizes this is an entire, entirely incredible task commission. He wants to extend the glory of God to the entire known world, and yet, how could he do this? Now, in spite of the gravity and enormity of the task, he trusted God to provide whatever he needed to complete it, and that's how we do that. We don't say, well, the task is too big, humanly speaking. No, the task is so big, we have to rely on God. And that's what David was doing. He was trusting God. And that's how we should tackle every challenge that comes our way which directly would advance the kingdom of God. We never should say, well, I don't think we could do that because we don't have the money, we don't have the help, we don't have the skill, we don't have this, we don't have that, we don't have the time. It doesn't matter. If it's for the glory of God, God will deal with it. God will take care of that. Even if it means that the next generation will complete that task, we consider beginning the work One of the things that is quite obvious for David was the need for the Lord's help in building his temple. David understood that he needed God, and he understood that that the temple had to be built. Now we too, in our modern era of darkness and gross cultural evil, we must assess what is the need of the kingdom of God. And so the question is, what is needed in our day in order to glorify God, make known his power and authority in a very conspicuous way and to use it to strike awe in the heart of God's people as well as God's enemies. Now remember, here's what I said. Now notice what I said, remember this. You can strike fear in the heart of God's enemies until you first strike fear in the heart of God's people. The people of God do not fear God. They cannot express the fear of God. So we must establish faithful congregations of gener, and this is key, of generational strength, of generational passion, where the whole counsel of God is proclaimed in every area and realm of life to the point of action taken in a real world. In other words, fathers and mothers, aunts, uncles, grandparents, you cannot let the next generation go willy-nilly. Consider for a moment some of the challenges that David might have had to face if he were to build the temple himself or if the next generation was tasked, as it was, with the temple building. Number one, what are the concerns? Of all of which he was trusting God for, where would he get the money? It takes money to build a kingdom. Who would help? The building needed skilled craftsmen. Who were they? Where were they? What should the tabernacle look like? Who would come up with the blueprint? How would that affect the nation of Israel? Since Israel had failed to do what they should have done in the first place and didn't, how would they respond to David's project? In other words, would there be rebels, gainsayers, those who desire to be discouragements to the king? Who would be there to watch over the work? Would there be those that might sabotage the work as in Nehemiah's day? How would the enemies of Israel react? Would they see the work and plan on attacking? Although David was at rest, would this project bring him back into major conflicts with the enemies of God? You know, sometimes we say, well, you know, if I do this, uh, I'm going to, you know, I might have the FBI at my door. It's something to be considered. And if the task passes to the next generation, how is David to equip that generation for such a monumentous task. These were real concerns, and I'm sure David had to consider all of them. But that did not face David in the least. And the reason is because he knew it had to be done. The time was at hand. In fact, it was well overdue. The temple had to be built. God is then compelled to give the reason why he's going to allow David to be part of his plan in the building of the temple. Note, verse the condemnation of God's statement upon the apostate Israelites who failed to establish a visible testimony for God's glory. And notice what he's doing here. He's contrasting Israel's failure with David's proposed success. Notice verse 6 and following. Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day. Notice what he's indicating here. I delivered them, I took them out of Egypt, just like he's taken us from our sin, and yet they still didn't do what I asked them to do. But I have walked in a tent. In all the places where I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, say, why build ye not me in house of cedar? So God is reminding David that throughout the wilderness deliverance of Israel, the people failed. Even though they were liberated, they failed to take time to construct a suitable place of worship for the Lord. God adds the fact that throughout that time in the wilderness He was present with them. He was protecting them. He was caring for them. He gave them manna in the wilderness and yet they acted as if He was not worthy to be honored. They never really focused upon His glory. They were just focused upon their own bellies. They weren't desirous for a conspicuous place of worship. They wandered in the wilderness because they failed to honor God. Will we wander in our wilderness because we fail to honor God? God here is indicting Israel for their worldliness, their sloth, their indifference, and their irreverence. At the same time, God is praising David for his desire to build a suitable place of worship, even though David was at ease and it rested in his own house. And once again, I must repeat that this is the problem with the modern Christian. It seems as if when God grants his people rest, all too often they take it to mean that their labors to glorify God are complete. But this is entirely untrue. Our rest in Christ is given to us for the express purpose of working. Note how the Apostle Paul comments on this. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, underline, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Unto good works. Not unto, take it easy. Have a nice day, be happy, and at the end of your life, go to heaven. So what is needed in these days of darkness are men with a mind to work the works of God in the world for his honor and glory. And this is the only way that the kingdom of God will be advanced. Nehemiah's wall, as it was with the building of the temple, was completed by men who were ready, willing, and able to work. Note the words of the prophet from Nehemiah chapter 4. So built we the wall. You could say this. So built we the kingdom. So we advanced God's glory. So built we the wall. And all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof. Why? For the people had a mind to work, they wanted to work. Now think about this. All these men that were working, they all had families. They had wives, they had children, they were busy, and yet, those obligations did not prohibit them from working on God's kingdom advancement. So I am sick and tired of an individuals saying, well, you know, I'm really busy, got a big job, I'm working extra hours, I got a lot of kids, I got two kids, I got one kid, I got no kids, but you know, I'm really busy. If you have a mind to work, you'll find the time to work. Israel was full of excuses, but they had no reason. They had a mind to work. And what these families did, what these men did, they incorporated their families into the overall work of the kingdom. They took their kids with them. They've developed generational continuity and diligence, and they taught their children to work sometimes. You know, when I think back at my youth, my father was the oldest of nine children from an Italian family. When I was a young boy, a little boy, and all I wanted to do was go ride my bicycle with my friends, I couldn't go. I had to work. I had to work. I had to do the garden, I had to do this, the other thing. My father wanted all this stuff done. He had a list a mile long. He went to work and I had to do this list. I hated it. I hated it. I swore that when I got my own place, I I'd, I'd black-topped the whole place. But if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for my father, whipping me into working, I wouldn't be working. We need a mind to work. We need to take our kids, and we need to make them work with us. As we as we, we mentor them, we need to have them learn how to work. To so incorporate your family into the overall work of the kingdom. Integrating the family into the kingdom work ensures that the next generation will work. And that's what we want. We don't want lazy kids. We don't want girly men. We want workers. We want those with a mind to work. During the days of Nehemiah, Israel knew that the incorporation and the involvement of their families in the work of God would ensure it would be the security of a legacy of kingdom advancement throughout several generations. There would be no stopping. It would be a continuity of generational work. There wouldn't be a a break in the continuity of of fidelity. So God now grants David one of the most glorious vocations known to man, the establishment of his tabernacle. Note, however, that God doesn't simply give the commission without a warning Given a mere man such a glorious task might cause that man to become prideful, thinking that, you know, I'm something special, I'm David the king. If David is to be given such a task, he, in order to complete that task properly, he must remain humble. Therefore, God is quick to remind him of where he came from. In other words, David, remember, you came from nothing, and you are nothing. You see, this is the problem with so many Christians, especially with pastors. Without a constant reminding of who they are by nature and from where they have come from, pride will take over, and it usually does. Observe to the extent that God reminds David of his humble beginnings in verses 8 and 9. Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from nothing, from sheepcoats, from following the sheep to be a ruler of my people. I did it all. It was God that took David from the sheep coats. And I was with thee, with us, whoever thou wentest and have cut off all thine enemies. I did it, and have made thee a great name. I did it, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. It was God that did it, not David. David had nothing to do with it. All the glory, all the credit, all the honor, all the the, the power, all the thanksgiving belong to God. Because brethren, if you are anything, you are That as a result of God's sheer mercy in spite of your wretchedness. In spite of your wretchedness. God then tells David that the blessing that God is to receive is to extend to the nation of Israel. Notice it wasn't for David. It wasn't just for his family. It was for all of Israel. Verses 10 and following. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more, so as before times and as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies it's all about my people God's word to David was absolute if God stated that he was going to have David build him a house David was going to build him a house and that's very clear but what God is also saying is that God is not only going to build a temple through David for himself, God is going to establish David and his family by building a house for him as well. Also, notice, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. Now, how the blessing of the Lord is passed on to the obedient servant of the Lord. David wanted to build the house of the Lord. God said, yes, you're going to build a house for me, but I'm going to make sure you get your own house. We see here how the gospel is in view. I believe when contemplating this scenario, as David is often a type of Christ, I think in this case, David may be a type of God himself, the Father. David is a type of God the Father who commissions Christ the Son, Solomon, to establish the temple of God. But this first temple is not the body of Christ, but I believe it is the Lord Jesus Christ who himself is the temple of God. Because the temple of God is... Christ Himself. Remember, before the body of Christ is established as the temple of God, Jesus must be first established as the temple of God. Remember what He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He was talking about Himself as the temple and then we become the temple. It was the resurrection of Jesus as the eternal organic temple that provided a way for the temple of God, the church and the body of Christ to be established. And so God promises Christ that not only will He be the temple, but he will build the temple. David now is a type of Christ, is reminded of his humiliation, so as not to be puffed up with pride as Adam was. And finally, all Israel benefits from his work, even as all of the Church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, the temple of Christ, benefits from Christ and his work. So he's going to bless all of his people. A blessing will come from God's calling, and Christ's labor. God then points forward to a prophetic declaration clearly stating that David himself will not build the temple, but rather through his son the kingdom will be built. We see this in twelve and thirteen of second Samuel seven. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt see with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. Now, of course, historically it's talking about Solomon, but it's really talking about the Christ. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So herein is a clear and dramatic anticipation of the eternal substantial king of nations, the substantive king of nations, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, one final consideration. Our fathers of the Reformation were not able to bring the kingdom of God to his complete end on a global scale. Rightly, they are our fathers. And while they laid the essential groundwork, perhaps it is up to us, not so much our children. We are not to pass the buck to our children saying, well, the kingdom will be established by our children. No, wait a minute. We're the children of the Reformation. So while they laid the essential groundwork, perhaps it is up to us and to our children, of course, to finish what they started. We can't just lay it upon our children. We have the responsibility as well. And that can only happen. Things can only happen. And permit me to stress this again. This can only happen if we take our religion and our worship seriously and teach our children to do so likewise. Perhaps then, when we forsake our lusts and our worldly pursuits and take God at His word and take God seriously... God will use us mightily for His glory. We shall examine David's response to such commission next when we return to our exposition on the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.